two scripture readings this morning. The first is from the book of Proverbs. Whoever conceals their sin does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. And the second reading is from Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Well, good morning. We're going to begin this morning with the gain that comes to us on the other side of this discipline, with the benefit that accrues to us, with the upside that comes from embracing this spiritual practice. Because when we talk about disciplines, which we have been for the last few weeks, we're in the realm of pain and gain, right? No pain. You guys are familiar with this, right? Those of you who went to the gym in January, no pain, no gain, gain. Um, you know, the internship system here in New York City, no pain, no gain. Some of you just look at New York City as the pain, and you're looking forward to the gain of cashing out on the beach or the suburbs later in your life. But, you know, we, get, we understand the way this works. It's the idea that you need to embrace something difficult now for a better later. And there's a beautiful picture of better painted for us this morning, even just in the scriptures that Moses just read for us. So on, on, the, on the gain side, on the benefit side, it says that, you know, if, if you don't acknowledge your sins, you won't prosper. So prosperity is on the gain side. Mercy, being the recipient of mercy, is also on the gain side. I don't know if you've noticed, but most of us want justice for everybody else besides ourselves. But when it really comes down to us, we want mercy. We really do. We want a second chance. We want an opportunity to make up for infractions. So mercy is promised to us. A third benefit that was repeated over and over again was the idea of blessing. And to have a life that is blessed is to have a life that just has the obvious fingerprints of the favor of God. It's like God is taking care of you. God is showing his kindness to you. To be blessed is to have a joy that is rooted in your encounter with God. David wrote in that psalm that before he embraced this discipline, he felt like he was wasting away and his, his energy was sapped. So even emotional strength would be on the benefit side of this discipline. So it's being forgiven. Being forgiven, knowing you're forgiven. Contrary to popular opinion, the Christian church does not exist to help people exist in a consistent, persistent state of guilt. We actually exist to alleviate guilt help people know that they're forgiven it's on the it's on the benefit gain side of this discipline some other scriptures talk about the the idea that if we embrace this discipline we'll actually be healed and that's in James chapter 5 and another says that we'll be able to move unencumbered through the course of our lives there's a lot of upside on this and if I was going to pick a word to summarize it it's the word relief It's the word relief. It's a very powerful feeling, isn't it? The experience of relief. Just a couple of illustrations. You know when you pick the wrong cart in baggage claim? 
the one with the errant wheel that goes sideways like this and scrapes through the terminal and you're like pushing and you're just thinking, I don't have time. And suddenly it corrects itself and it just starts to move smoothly. (sighs) Relief. Or the experience you've had when you thought you offended somebody because they haven't been returning your text, emails, Facebook messages, or phone calls. And they tell you, I was just away. And you were thinking, you know, you had to employ your best avoidance strategies, get off at a different subway stop, shop at a different store, hide behind the coffee, you know, the curtain over there at church, because they might, and there's nothing wrong. Relief. This is my favorite, and it's one I have a lot of practice at. You get your rental car and you're speeding out of the city, literally, speeding out of the city. And you pass it. There's tons of speed traps in New Jersey, right? That's where they all. That's where they all are. That's how they revenue. It's income transfer from New York to New Jersey, and you pass a police officer who's sitting there with all his equipment, and you know he's got you. And your neck gets really hot, and your heart beats really fast. And you white knuckle the steering wheel and you keep checking the rear of your mirror because you know he has you dead to rights. And a mile clicks by and another mile and then there's nothing. And then you feel relief. And then you continue to go 85, right? (laughs) So relief is what we're holding out today on the other side of this discipline. And if that's not interesting to you, if you would rather be, you know, depressed and weighed down and confused and, and burdened, you can play with your smartphone for the next half an hour. But that's, what we're, that's, that's where it goes today. And I think it's something worth exploring. So what is the discipline? It's the discipline of confession. And the sermon has four parts. We're going to talk about a definition of confession. We're going to talk about parallels to confession. We're going to talk about traps that can prevent us from enjoying the benefits of confession, so traps. And then we're going to talk about the practice of confession. So what is the definition of confession, parallels to confession, traps that keep us from the benefits of confession, and how do we practice confession? So what is confession? Well, I'll tell you what it's not. It's not the kind of coerced, minimalistic admission of guilt that we see all around us, you know, between, you know, uh, business people who get caught in insider trading or uh, political figures that get accused of some kind of scandal or even certain uh, famous football players uh, who remain nameless today. Uh, But it's not that kind of thing where it's like they hold on to their innocence to the very end and they finally admit some little minimalistic piece of guilt. You know, they only acknowledge what they have to because of the evidence. It's just this very coerced, minimalistic thing. That's not what I'm talking about this morning, which perhaps would be confession is popularly practiced. And I'm really not talking about uh, the ritual of confession that is uh, part of the Catholic Church, you know, where you go to a priest and uh, basically it's an anonymous thing. You don't know who the priest is and they listen to your confession and they tell you some things to do and tell you that your sins are forgiven. That's, I'm not really speaking to that either. I'm speaking to something that's a bit more personal and it's a bit more granular to our lives. So confession technically would just be the process of admitting our sins to God and others with a commitment to change. Confession is admitting our sins to God and others with a commitment to change, with a commitment to change. 
It's, at some point, it's, it, to be helpful, it's voluntarily. We, we do it, and we want to do it, and we want to change. And so, you know, this introduces sin as a problem in our lives. I don't know if that's on your radar or not, but it, it introduces that. We'll speak to that a little bit today. And when I think of sin, it's a, sin is a robust thing. It's a, it's a complex thing. It's not just a few minor infractions that, you know, it's like these isolated, one-off incidents. Sin, is, sin, sin encompasses all the ways that our habits and attitudes oppose God. I mean, they, in the fullest sense, in the most biblical sense, we would say we have a, a bent towards sin that manifests itself in behaviors and attitudes. And those behaviors and attitudes often become habituated. They just become part of the way we do life. And so if we're facing our sin, we're acknowledging not just that an action is wrong, but more like our way is wrong, and it, we need to change course. Sin has a vertical, this is not vertical, this is vertical, sorry. Sin has a vertical dimension. It's about us and God, and God is a person who sees and knows us and, and is affected by our behavior. But sin also almost always has a horizontal dimension. It almost always affects other people. My sin affects the people around me. Most of my sins are sins against people, not just sins against God. And so that's why it's not just enough for it to be with me and God, but it's admitting our sins to others. That's confession. Very simple, straightforward definition. It's admitting our sins, acknowledging our sins to God and others with a commitment to change. So what are some, and that sounds very religious, right? And I want to talk a little bit about some parallels to, to confession in our everyday lives. And there's three, at least three. One is the beat, and it's part of, part of every drama, part of every script. It's, sometimes the beat is used to describe the smallest uh, measure of, 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 of forward motion in the plot, but sometimes a dramatic beat looks just like confession. Because every story is driven forward because the protagonist, the main character, has something they want, something they desire. Something it could be a good thing. It could be they want to get away from a bad thing. But they have something they want. But their way is blocked by the antagonist. And so as they're fighting to get what they want, they change their approach. They realize what they had been thinking would work won't work. They realize, I have to kill the antagonist. You know, the light bulb goes off and... They go buy their gun and do their thing or whatever it is. They, it's, it's that light bulb moment where they realize their approach to getting to where they want to go isn't going to work and they change their tactic. That's called a beat. And confession is realizing the way I'm doing my life isn't going to get me to where I want to go. And I'm going to change my approach. I'm going to change my approach. In business, it's called a pivot. Especially in a startup scenario in business, there's this interplay between potential customers, and the service or product provider. And when you start, you have certain assumptions as you run your business about what's going to meet the customer's needs, what, they're going to, what they want, what they'll pay for. And as you get into that iterative loop, you realize that some of those assumptions are true and some of them are false. And effective entrepreneurs know how to smell that and respond instantly. My assumptions are wrong. I'm going to change course. That's what confession is. It's realizing that some of my, conf- my assumptions in my life were wrong, and I need to alter my path. It's a pivot. Look at the, beat, the pivot. The third example is the expert voice. We all love our experts, right? 
Um, it was over 10 years ago, my youngest daughter wanted to learn how to ride horses. So we didn't live here. We didn't go to Central Park and ask for favor. But a friend connected us with a lady who is a great teacher. And so she would tell you what to do. And then about six or eight months later, my middle daughter decided she wanted to do it too. And dad signed up for horse lessons as well. Do any of you remember the episode of Seinfeld where Kramer signed up to do karate with like the 10-year-old girls? Go look it up. That's what it was like a little bit. But I didn't win any ribbons. It's the only difference. But so here we are, and I get to be really good friends with this teacher, Maria. And we would be out in this huge ring, and she would yell at us. You know, your feet are wrong. Ankle down. Stand up straight. Too tight. So I used to tease her. I said, Maria, I pay you to yell at me. That's what we do. We all do this, right? I mean, some of you are in CrossFit, SoulCycle, um, you know, those types of things. You're paying somebody to yell at you. And we don't want our tutors or our therapists or, um, you know, the, the people that coach our kids. We don't really want them to yell too much. But we're really paying for somebody to speak into us and tell us, you're doing it wrong. Here's how to do it right. The great thing about New York is you don't even have to pay to be yelled at. Just get on the wrong side of the escalator in the subway. You'll have a, it's just like a lab for confession. Somebody will yell at you and say, no, you're supposed to stand on the right. And you will turn around and you'll say, I'm sorry, and then you'll move. You just confessed. I think all of us seek out expert voices for things we care about, things we really want to succeed in. Confession is surrendering yourself to the expert voice of God. All of us seek out expert voices for things we really want to excel in. We all do. Most of you wouldn't be here if you weren't doing that at some level in your life. Confession is seeking out and yielding to the expert voice of God. We do this. Confession sounds very religious. Confess your sins to God. Oh my goodness, that just sounds like something you would expect to say here in church and not here the rest of the week. But whether it's the beat or the pivot or the expert voice, it's part of the way we do life. It's part of we do life. And yet it's not automatic that we do it with our sins. And that leads to this third part of the sermon, which is about traps. Traps. These are things that could keep us from the benefits of confession, keep us from doing it. And the first one is denial. You know, we just pretend there's nothing wrong with us. Now, if you're married, this is a really hard illusion to maintain because your spouse could provide a list But it's just become this thing that we do. There's an article in the Wall Street Journal a few weeks ago that says, when you need to face the facts in your life, it was by um, Elizabeth Bernstein. And what I I learned from this article, among other things, was um, that we don't call it denial anymore. We have new terms for it. Information avoidance. Or my favorite, strategic ignorance. I didn't see that the trash can was overflowing in the kitchen, honey. You know, I didn't see that the sink was full of dishes. I didn't see the dog with her legs crossed before the door, by the door, needing to go out. I didn't see it. It's strategic ignorance. Now my gig is up because my wife is in the audience and she knows what's going on. But there's an underlying reason, Bernstein says, that we don't want to face the potentially damaging facts about ourselves. And we have a, she quotes from a psychiatrist from the University of Florida. We have that, yeah. 
He says, we want to think of ourselves as healthy and smart people who make good decisions. So we, we resist any information that challenges that set of beliefs. It's just like it'll, it'll sink our whole battleship if we have a flaw. And we don't embrace it. And it's called denial. It's called denial. And one of Jesus' closest friends, John, wrote that if we say we don't have sin, we're deceiving ourselves and we're even calling God a liar. Like we're way outside the zone that's going to get us to healthy and get us to benefits. Denial. Denial. Second trap is blame shifting. Blame shifting. You know, this is a scenario where the problem is always out there. It's always somebody else. It's, it's always somebody else's fault. And um, having spent years listening to people complain and complaining a fair share myself, it's always that way, isn't it? It's just the problem is always out there. And if you've been the victim of some real trauma or injustice, it's really hard to think that there could also be a problem in here. If, you know, you're a striver and you've got those next 10 goals in mind and you're just always, it's just, I got to hit that thing, I got to hit that thing. It's really hard to think that there could be a problem in here. And in a climate that becomes, is becoming more and more politically charged and, and sides get polarized and emotionally invested, it's really hard to think that there could be anything wrong on our side. It's always their side. But if there was anyone had a right to point a finger at the they, at the other side, it was a man named Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He was a Russian dissident. He was arrested and imprisoned, put in labor camp by Joseph Stalin. And he says something very, very, very profound about this. It just takes the legs out from under this blame-shifting thing. This is what he says. If only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us. And then we could just destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? The line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. I actually think one of the validators of a, a biblical or Christian view of human nature is that it, it is able to embrace the tension that we all experience every day. That people are not basically good and that people are not completely worthless and bad. They're in the messy middle. Solzhenitsyn nails it. But if you always locate the problem outside yourself, it's blame-shifting. And you don't get to confession. Very hard. You don't get to forgiveness, like Kara enjoined us last week, and you don't get to confession. But Jesus was very blunt with his disciples. He would say things like, you know, God loves you, God cares about you, God's going to provide for you, God's going to take care of you. But then he would also say, you guys are evil. You guys are sinners. Evil comes from within inside of you. Jesus said those things. He said those things. So if we blame shift, we don't get to the benefits of confession. Third, the third trap, disputing the rules. We just want to debate. We're, you know, we're not going to agree that anything's really right or wrong. We're going to debate it all the time. We're not going to, we, we are very uncomfortable with something being called a sin and something being called good. Like we, we don't like having to make that 
dividing line. And we certainly don't trust religious people who don't even seem to adhere to their own definitions of good and bad to make that judgment for us. And we're very uncomfortable with this. And yet here we are in a church on Sunday morning, every week we say, the Bible says, and there's this implication in what we're doing that this ancient book could help us decide what's really in, what's really out. And it, some of you probably think, really? I mean, the music's good and it's great space, but this seems very archaic. I mean, are you sure you guys know where you are? You're in New York City. It's 2017. This, this might be more fitting for the, royal, the rural south or something that you're going to tell us that the Bible says and this is right and this is wrong. And then we get kind of left with the alternative. What is the alternative? Our society tells us what's a sin and what's not a sin. How's that work? How's that working? Or, or this is really where we land. We decide, and we say this all the time, I will decide what's right or wrong for me. I will trust my heart. So I, I know we land there. Sometimes we land there because we've been hurt. Sometimes we land there because we really haven't wrestled it to the ground and played out the logical consequences of our, of our worldview, which is kind of normal. But I want to do a thought experiment with you this morning with the Bible. And it, and it comes from the Ten Commandments. So I, I want you to imagine yourself on the receiving... Follow this carefully. I want you to imagine yourself on the receiving side of violations of the Ten Commandments. I want you, as I know it's lots of prepositions there, I want you to imagine yourself on the receiving side of violations of the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments have to do with God. You know, have no other gods before me. Don't make an image of God. Uh, keep the Sabbath. Honor God by keeping the Sabbath. And uh, don't take the Lord's name in vain. So you may say, well, I don't, if somebody violates those, I mean, People violate those every nanosecond in New York City. Like, I'm, not, I'm just not going to be the spiritual police, and I don't care. Okay. The next six all have to do with human relationships. Commandment number five is honor your father and mother. So if you're a father or a mother, would you like to be dishonored? Would you like your children to disrespect you, not listen to you, never thank you? I mean... The reality is, is when, when even one of those little things happen, we, we do all those, these mental gymnastics. Oh, no, I'm failing as a parent, and my kids don't like me, and we hate it. Commandment number six, do not murder. And if you like to be murdered today, it's ridiculous. Well, it's not totally ridiculous. I mean, 20, 25 years ago in New York City, that was something a lot of people worried about. And even today, when you hear about Somebody being randomly pushed in front of a train by a stranger kind of creeps you out, doesn't it? It, it? it arouses a primal fear in you. I mean, it's kind of like the ultimate violation. Next commandment is do not commit adultery. Would you like to be cheated on by your significant other? Of course not. That's like a deal breaker. It's like I'm out of here if that happens. Do not steal. Well, I left my apartment unlocked when I went to church so that just, they could just help themselves. Of course not. Of course not. 
Do not speak falsely against your neighbor. How does it feel when someone spreads a half-truth or an untruth about you? Anywhere. The last commandment is do not covet anything that your neighbor possesses. You know, their wife, their servants, their livestock. Don't covet. Don't, covet. don't long to possess the things that your neighbor has. That one I think is a little shady because some of us are like, yeah, I want to have stuff that's so good that everybody wants it. I understand that. But it doesn't take too long for even that scenario to get creepy. I mean, if somebody was really ogling your spouse, that would be a problem. If they came to your, your, your apartment and they were like picking up your stuff and asking you where you got it, I mean, it's weird, right? See, it's so easy for us to say, well, that's just an ancient book. That stuff was written 3,500 years ago. It's got nothing for us. We figured it all out. And yet we go through the list and it's like on every single one, there's a part of us that says, yeah, I have to agree. I would never want to be on the receiving end of the violations of those commandments. I agree. Like, there's something visceral in me that says, no, that's, that's wrong. That shouldn't happen. That shouldn't happen to me. People shouldn't do that to each other. Mark Twain said that, it ain't the parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. And I think... We want to debate what's right or wrong. And there's enough in here to get you started. There's enough in here to get you started. There's enough in here to get you started that you'd agree about. You just agree with it straight out. The fourth, uh, the fourth trap is that we conflate confession with shame. We conflate confession with shame. And this, this cycles back into this idea that sin, the idea of sin and guilt is just something that you know, religious authorities have co- concocted so they can... They can achieve their will to power and dominate, you know, weak people and beat them down. Or maybe we don't even say it's a human thing. Maybe we just think of God as this kind of angry tyrant that makes, wants to make us feel terrible at ourselves. But it was, it's in all the music. It was in Ryan's intro. It's this tension. God values us. He, will, he does accept us where we are, but he accepts us and loves us so much that he wants us to move to his better. And for some reason... We're very selective in who we give the space to treat us that way. Again, go back to your expert voice. You'll pay somebody to tell you that you're doing it the wrong way, and then you'll do what they say, and you'll never feel hurt or offended by the whole process. And if you're a parent, you know that you can love your children and be angry at them at the same time. You know that you can really care about them and think they're amazing, but also want them to grow and develop and reach their full potential. And yet this idea has crept in that, well, if God does that, then he's, you know, he's not loving, he's not kind if he expects us to change. And we let it send us to a place where the whole thing's just about shame. It's just reinforcing this idea that we're worthless. And that's not true. It's not true. Conflating confession with shame will trip you up every time because it's not the case. <clears throat> God sees value in us, but he also sees brokenness in us. And he wants us to take, because he sees value in us, he's given us, given everything to move us to that place where we realize our full value or our full potential. So conflating confession with shame is a trap. And the last trap is silent confession. It's silent confession. It's keeping it to ourselves. It's saying, yeah, well, okay, I get it. You know, even the best, you know, leadership books and executive stuff will say you got to be self-aware and you got to course correct and I, I get all that. So I'll, I'll do a little bit more of that. Now, it needs to be spoken. 
to have real power. I mean, it's kind of obvious, I think, that if your sin has hurt another person, that part of the moving beyond it process is going to involve speaking to that other person. But even when it hasn't, there's a kind of power that happens when we confess our sins to a group of people that we can trust. We aren't going to let us off too easy, but aren't going to beat us up or take advantage of us. There's just a kind of power that comes when we do that. I think about um, a group of men that I meet with in the city and especially come in here just thinking about, I need to be successful, I need to make a good impression. And these are guys I wanted to make a good impression with. And just acknowledging to them that took away all the power of that need to perform, that anxiety about, am I being like, that kind of thing. It was really powerful. It was really an interesting experience for me. And it just validates this idea that we need to speak it to people we can trust. A guy named Paul called me uh, years ago, and he had gone to my church for a while. We had to confront him about something that he was doing. It was just kind of socially awkward, made some people feel uncomfortable. He didn't respond well. Paul called me from hospice. He said, I want you to come. I want to talk to you. So I did. And he brought up that incident. And he started to cry, and he said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the discomfort that I caused those people. He said, I don't know how long I have, but I want you to go to those people, anybody that you think was involved, and I want you to tell them that I'm sorry. I said, Paul, you're forgiven. It's great. And then I went back and I told the people I could find. But he needed to speak it. And he needed to speak it to a human being, and he needed to have that interaction. And I think that's something that the Catholic rite of, of confession has embodied. And we still need it. We still need it. So silent confession is a trap. So we have these traps. The trap of denial, the trap of blame shifting, the trap of disputing the rules. Um, the two others that I can't remember right now. We have these traps, and they could keep us from the benefit of confession. So how do we do it? Like, what do we do? You know, it really boils down to just two things. And it's kind of a loop that we need to get ourselves into, which is a lot like any kind of discipline or exercise. And it's the interplay between assessing ourselves and acting on what we find. Assessing ourselves and acting. That we examine our lives. I would say, suggest with God's help, which comes in the form of prayer and the Holy Spirit and scripture and community. We assess our lives and then we act accordingly. There's a great prayer. I want to put it on the screen. It's from Psalm 139. I think Matt preached from this like back in January, but, I don't, but this, just this part is really, really powerful. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We get into a mode of self-assessment. We push ourselves past denial and blame shifting and say, God, is there anything wrong with me? Is there anything I need to change? This is very hopeful. It's about getting better. But it's a loop. It's a loop. So one way to do it would be to take that daily meeting that Ryan suggested to us a couple weeks ago and just incorporate this prayer into it every time. Wait. There's another practice that's kind of similar. It's called the prayer of examine. And it's, it's, a, it's a similar kind of way to do this that 
that ancient Christians used, and they would take time to reflect on what they call moments of consolation and moments of desolation. You can even journal it. Sometimes I do it. I just do like an, I just like have a flashback to accounting class, and I make a T account, you know, on the positive and the negative. And you know, where where was the consolation? Where are the times where I felt connected to God and others, and I felt like my life, the way I'm living my life, is in harmony with Him and and what He wants for me. And the negative is what are the moments of desolation, the places where I felt disconnected from him and from others? Now, we don't always feel disconnected because of some sin we've committed. Sometimes we do. It's a way to mine. It's a way to be examining your life on a, in a habitual way. Then you act. Then you've got to do it. You, you, you've got to acknowledge it to God, and you've got you've to communicate it to people. And the more quickly you do that, the more quickly you get to relief. We used to have this guy in our church. His name was Willard. And Willard, Willard was a larger-than-life kind of guy. He wore a lot of cologne. And he was always loud when he was up. And he meant well, and he, he promised you the moon. You know, I'll take you here, and we'll do this, and it'll be great all the time. Drove me crazy. Because he would kind of overpromise and underdeliver, and I really think he meant well. I just think he just would just just didn't have the capacity to do everything he wanted to do. But I would get annoyed, and I I knew how to tweak him. You know, I'd just ignore him. I would answer his phone calls, and it would really, really bother him, really hurt him. And this was a problem because we were friends, and I was his pastor, so you know we're you know. Kind of a violation of the code or something. So I was in one of these cycles and I was examining and I just realized, I always wanted Willard to go first. Why couldn't he just say, you know, that, yeah, I do promise too much, but you know, he just, I just always wanted him to go first. He never did. And I realized I was being condescending and I realized that I was being judgmental and I realized I was being harsh. I realized I was not being loving towards him. And I was like, really? But once you get that, got to act. So I drove over to Willard's house. He was mowing his yard. Back where I come from, we have yards, okay? He had the most expensive, fastest lawnmower you could buy. It was 10, 12 years ago. He had huge headphones on. You're like, you know, he's like tank top, gold chains, rocking out. And I make the long walk through his yard. And he finally, you know, he sees me after a turn. And he zooms over, turns it all off. What are you doing here? I came here to apologize. I haven't, I haven't been loving. I don't remember what I said, but basically, I haven't been loving you well, brother. And he gave me a big, sweaty, lawn-mowing hug. <laughs> you can't get them in New York City. <laughs> and, you know, I don't know if he ever really lived up to my expectations after that, but I felt relief, by the way. But every time we got together, like every time, he would bring up that incident. He was so, it was just a, it was a seminal in, incident in our relationship. And it was, it's real, guys. When you go to somebody and you acknowledge it, it's almost all, you're almost always going to get the sweaty lawn mowing hug. You're almost always going to have reconciliation. You're almost, the wheel's going to straighten out. The tension's going to go away. The cop's not going to pull out and pull you over. You're going to have relief. And it's not just with the people, it's with God. So I want to give you a chance right now 
to pray Psalm 139. You guys put that back up on the screen. To yourself. And if God brings something to mind that you need to deal with it, deal with, I just urge you to deal with that today. You know, you can go and we have people that will pray with you. You can confess to them today. They'll keep it all between the two of you. There's a person that you need to talk to. You could just head out of here right as soon as we're done and you just call them up or, you know, there's a million ways you can connect, contact them and do it. But take what he shows you, assess, and then act on it. So bow your heads and pray this prayer in your hearts. Search me, God. Search me, God. And know my heart. Test me, God. And know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. Anything. And lead me in the way of your everlasting life. God, give us the courage and the hope to take those things which you show us and act. And give us the perspective to make confession a regular part, daily part of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.